As we enter into a time of reading through God's Word, I want to invite you to get your Bibles out and open them up to 1 Peter chapter 4. And a few announcements for you as well as we dive into our sermon time this morning. The office will be closed tomorrow for Holiday Monday. Just so you know, the prayer meetings are still taking place each Monday. So if you want to be part of the prayer meetings, you're welcome to come to the church, 7.15 on Mondays. It's been a really special time to pray together. And if you have any requests, if you can't make it on Monday, but you'd love for us to pray for you or your family or something on your heart, there's even uh, a jar at the back of the church in the foyer on the counter where you can put prayer requests, and then we'll pray for them. And if they're private, we'll pray for them quietly, and we won't share them with everyone. Just a few people will pray for them. And if they're okay to share with everyone, then we'll praise a group for them. So feel free to use those and to share prayer requests with us. We're also going to be praying this morning before we go into First Peter for Jake and Frieda Braun and for their family and for the pain they'll be going through right now. There's an email that went out just a couple days ago letting us know that, that Jake's health is failing and that soon he'll be with his Lord and Savior in heaven. So we're going to be praying for their family. So difficult when we can't all be together and we can't have the whole church family here to pray for them and pray for their whole family. A couple other items in your bulletin you probably noticed. MDS is doing a volunteer project at West Bank Bible Camp this summer. So if you've ever wanted to volunteer with MDS and if you want to do it locally here at our camp, There's an opportunity to get involved right there working on the building project or as a support worker in the kitchen. There's different areas where you can serve. Our semi-annual meeting will be taking place at the end of June on the 27th. Happy birthdays to Lois, Megan, and John. Happy birthday to the three of you this week. And happy anniversary to George and Wynn. Financially, well done. You've been pulling your weight. I appreciate that. Look at that number come up. That's top notch right there. I keep telling Chantel we should just sell the house. And then if we sold the house, we'd have money to give. But living in a tent with all the kids doesn't, doesn't thrill her. So until then, we'll try our best. What else we got? We're going to keep praying for other churches in our community, missionaries that are part of Multiply, pastors in our province. That's so special to go through in those who are sick and those who are shut in. So as we go uh, into our sermon time, let's pray for the Braun family and pray for a few of the things that we see in our bulletin. So just bow with me for a second as we, as we intercede for our church family. Father in heaven, uh, there's no joking, Lord, when we come before you. And we pray for a family that is about to say goodbye and a family that's grieving and hurting. That pain is so real. And yet we stand on all the promises that you make in Scripture that this life is just building towards the next life, that we're going to be welcomed to a wedding feast in heaven, that there's great joy and glory waiting for us in heaven, that we get to be with you there. That all the pain and suffering in this world does not compare to the great astounding joy that's waiting for us. So Lord, we hold that promise in our hands and we extend that in prayer to the Braun family. That you would take care of them, Lord. That your Holy Spirit would be a comfort to them. 
that our church family, especially those who are close to them, would be close to them now. Lord, fill them with hope that our time on this earth is short, but our time with you is forever. And it's a beautiful thing. It's a beautiful thing, those who have hope, who do not have to fear. Thank you, Lord, for their family. Care for them, Lord, in ways that I don't even know how to pray for, in ways that I can't minister to. Take care of them. Lord Jesus, thank you for the other things that we have in our bulletin that we can bring before you faithfully. Thank you for those who are sick and shut in, especially this past year, those who have been separated from us in person this whole year. Lord, take care of them. And Lord, would we soon be able to see them again. Thank you for the missionaries, Lord, that we love and pray for. Thank you for the pastors in our city, Lord, and in our province who faithfully proclaim your gospel and bring people before you, Lord. Bring your word to life. Intercede for other people in prayer. Lord, thank you for their ministry. And would your church grow in this province, Lord, would it grow in this city in ways that are outside of our church? Would it grow? Would your Holy Spirit, Lord, bring revival in our hearts and would that reach the people around us and the people that we love? Lord, bring the change. As we go into your word this morning, Lord, would we do that with reverence and with respect for the weight and the authority that it holds? And would we allow our hearts to be impacted by the words written for us, by the things that the Holy Spirit wants to show us, wants to show me, would I be willing this morning to hear my own words and carry them into action? We love you, Lord. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I want to read for you a passage from a book that I've been reading just before we step into 1 Peter. This is the book that Jana was referencing that she's been reading. This is Letters to the Church by Pastor Francis Chan. He writes this, and I enjoyed this quite a bit. He said, we live in a time when people go to a building on Sunday mornings. They attend an hour-long service and they call themselves members of the church. Does that sound shocking to you? Of course not. It's perfectly normal. It's what we grew up with. We all know that good Christians go to church. But here's the question. Have you ever read the New Testament? Do you find anything in Scripture that even is remotely close to the pattern that we've created? Do you find anyone who went to church? Try to imagine Paul and Peter having this conversation like we do today. Hey, Peter. Peter, where do you go to church now? Oh, I go to the river. They have great music. Love the kids' program. Oh, cool. Can I check out your church next Sunday? I'm, I'm just not getting much out of mine. Oh, totally. Um, I'm not going to be there next Sunday. Uh, little Matthew has soccer. How about the week after that? Yeah, yeah, sounds good. Hey, do they have a singles ministry by chance? <laughs> it's comical to think of Paul and Peter speaking like this, yet this is a normal conversation among Christians today. Why? Why are there so many things wrong with that above conversation? I don't even know where to start. The fact that we've reduced the sacred mystery of church to a one-hour service that we attend is staggering. And yet that's the way that I defined it for years. I didn't know anything different. It's what everyone did. So I didn't think to question it. 
Think about it this way. One of the elders in my church, his name is Rob. He spent most of his life in gangs. He encountered Jesus when he was in prison and placed in solitary confinement. Today, he's one of the most loving people I know. In fact, I'm not sure I know anyone who loves Jesus and people as well as Rob. Rob tells me stories of gang life, the fear that he felt when he left his gang to join the body of Christ. To do this in prison can be suicidal. You see, he had to make a serious break with his gang, and gangs are anything but casual about breaking those ties. But the Lord intervened to spare his life. It wasn't just the physical torture or death that he feared. He dreaded the rejection of those he loved. Hear that again. He dreaded the rejection by those he loved. The gang was his family. They were loyal. They were dear friends who looked out for him 24 hours a day. There was love and there's camaraderie from being in a gang that he had enjoyed since childhood. Now he would lose those relationships. He would be hated by them all. When Rob describes gang life, Much of it sounds like what the church was meant to be. Obviously, there's major differences. The drugs and the murder, the small details like that. But the idea of being a family, it's central to both gang life and God's design for the church. Yet while we use family terminology in our churches, like Pastor Darren does annoyingly over and over and over again, Rob's stories have convinced me that the gangs have a much stronger sense of what it means to be a family than we do in church. From what you know about gangs, could you imagine gang life being reduced to a weekly one-hour gathering? No group would briefly meet once a week and call that a gang. Imagine one gang member walking up to another gang member and saying, yo, how was gang? I had to miss this week. Life's been crazy. We all know enough about gangs to know that's ridiculous. Yet every week we hear Christians asking each other, how was church? Something God designed to function as a family, it's been reduced to an optional weekly meeting. And this has become normal, expected. How in the world did we get here? Any gang member will tell you that his brothers have his back, they're there for him, they're loyal, they're committed they're present. Meanwhile, in many churches, you have about as much of a connection to the people who are supposed to be your spiritual family as you do to people who sit in the same movie theater as you. First Peter chapter 4. He's writing to a group of people who have left their community, their gang, their people. And these Christians now have entered into the church. They've had to give up everything. They've been rejected by the people around them. They've walked away from their former life of sin, which would have included all the people that live in that life of sin. They've walked away from that. Now they've entered into the church. What have they found? And when Peter writes this, he's writing to wives of non-Christian husbands, slaves of non-Christian masters, people of low authority, people that are oppressed by the people around them. 
He says in chapter 1 that their faith in this suffering is being refined, just like gold going through a hot fire. It's burning off the impurities. This church and these churches are going through fire. So he writes to encourage them. These are the words that Peter wrote in chapter 4, verse 1. He says to them, Since, therefore, Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, so as to live for the rest of time in the flesh no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. He's trying to draw their attention to the compass. This idea that the direction of their life has forever been changed. And they need to have that same way of thinking that Jesus did. Jesus knew that suffering in the flesh right now was because of the life coming in the spirit that he was anticipating and that he had experienced in heaven. People who've chosen to follow Jesus are walking away from sin. They've left that life and now their pursuit is the will of God. But if they pursue God with the same way of thinking that they had before, they're going to find themselves in conflict. They have to have the mind of Christ who considered suffering, who considered persecution in the flesh, part of the refinement that got us ready for life in the spirit. The church needs to change their way of thinking. This is the community that they've left. Follow along at verse 3. For the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, Peter says. Living in sensuality, living in passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. Which is placing something else on the throne of your heart and worshiping it. right? Giving it the plates that Jesus rightfully deserves. Verse 4, with respect to this, They're surprised when you don't join them in the same flood of debauchery. And they malign you. Why are they surprised? Why is Peter writing to this church and saying, when you choose not to participate in those activities, they're surprised by that. Why? Because you used to be in those activities. That used to be your community. Those are your friends. That, that's your circle of people. And now they don't understand. You've encountered the Savior. And now you're not participating anymore. You're not there with them. Why aren't you in this like we are? This is what we do. This is who we are. It's like you've changed the direction of your life. It's like you're pointing the compass in a different direction. And then it leads to them maligning you. Speaking critically about you. Speaking about you behind your back when you leave the room. Talking about you. And they're saying, what is wrong with her? What's wrong with him? Are are we not good enough? They've encountered this Jesus and now we're not good enough to be their friends. They won't come to our activities anymore. They won't participate in our temple worship. They won't participate in our sin. Who needs him anyway? Thinks he's better than all of us. They malign you. These are people who are losing their friends. And Peter writes to them and says, I know. I know that they're maligning you. Because you've walked away from this list of things that you've built your life around and so have they. That's why having the mind of Christ is so important. Because his mind isn't on himself, it's on the Father. 
But when your mind is so focused on you that you'll be drawn back into those things because that is what the sin inside of us wants, is that community and that sin. Everybody wants to fit in. Everyone wants to be part of the group. So to hear that they've been maligned, it's heartbreaking. But Peter says that there's vindication. He says in verse 5, they will give account to him. That's God, who's ready to judge the living and the dead. And this, verse 6, is why the gospel was preached. Even to those who are dead, that though judged in the flesh the way people are judged, they might live in the spirit the way God does. Hard to know exactly who Peter's referring to. But what it sounds to me is that he's referring to the Christians who've just passed away. Like this could be 10, 20, maybe 30 years since Jesus died on the cross. And these churches have been built up. And it sounds a lot like he's saying, those people who the world rejected, your city rejected, your friends rejected, they've passed away now. But they passed away living for Jesus and their life is now in the spirit. It looks like they died for nothing. It looks like they gave up their entire circle of friends and family. And now they're gone. And it can feel hopeless. Like, what's the point? Why would I want to give up everything just to die like they did? Jesus hasn't come back yet. They need hope to know that there's life in the spirit. It's worth pursuing. Now, Peter turns the table. Now, instead of reflecting on the pain that we've experienced by walking away from sin, he talks about the position of the church. He talks about the gang. He talks about what it should look like and what it should feel like. And I'm not going to lie, the last time I was preaching here, uh, I was tough and I was upset and I was talking about loving one another. Peter is going to step into loving one another in a much more positive way than I did last time. Let's read this together. Peter says in verse 7, he says, The end of all things, church, is at hand, so therefore be self-controlled. Be sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling or complaint. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks, speak as one who speaks the oracles of God. Whoever serves, as one who serves by the strength that God supplies. In order that in everything, God may be glorified through Jesus. To him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Prayer. After talking about this community of sin that everyone has walked away from, the first thing he does is talk about the need to be in prayer. He says self-controlled. He says sober-minded. If you have translations that are different, this is the ESV that I'm reading through today. You might see other phrases there, but they're drawing back to that same thought that you need to be in focused prayer. You need a clear mind. You need to be disciplined, self-controlled to stay in prayer. Because if you're going to endure this suffering, if you're going to live this life of suffering that Jesus has lived and follow his example, you need to be deep in committed, disciplined prayer. You can't do this on your own. That's the point. And above all, verse 8, love one another earnestly. 
because it covers a multitude of sins. We could say amen to that. Love covers a multitude of sins. Are there people in your life who you've never forgiven for something? Like really struggled, really struggled to forgive. Could have been months ago, years ago. Chances are your love for them, your relationship with them, either doesn't exist or it's very, very weak. But now imagine someone who's the closest person in the world to you. The closest person in the world. And they sin against you. Do you harbor that anger against them for months and months and years? Most likely not. Right? Me and Chantel can have a disagreement about something. We can get upset about something. I forgive her. She forgives me. Love covers a multitude of sins. It's even further extended when you look at the example of Jesus on the cross who gave up everything to reunite us back to God. But when you love someone, you offer that forgiveness because you want that reconciliation. You want to be restored to them. You don't want that separation that happens when you're upset with someone and when you're harboring feelings against them, right? You want to be drawn back together. Love covers that sin. So if there's sin in your church, and if there's division in your church, be drawn back to earnest love for one another. Well, I'm mad at that person. Love them. And I'm mad at... Love them. Deep love for them. Serve them. Open your home to them. That kind of love. That kind of love. And watch as it covers over that sin, just like Jesus' sacrifice that atones. Like Mary, Martha, and Lazarus having supper with Jesus before he dies. And Mary takes a jar of perfume worth the whole year's wages. She pours it on the feet of her Savior. Because she had watched her Savior bring her brother back to life. Just this love, this deep give everything for the people around you kind of love. And it's easy. Here's where I'll get you, because this got me. Can I confess that? This next part really got me. Because it's easy to love people from a distance. It's easy to love people in church as long as you don't have to go up close to them. And COVID's been very good for that, hasn't it? It's easy to love people from far away because as soon as you get in close with them and have to live life with them, that takes a whole different level of love. It's easy to be cordial with people. There's like levels of friendship. Teenagers understand this very well. There's levels of friendship. There's like, I'll visit with you in the church foyer kind of friendship. And then there's, if I bump into you at the grocery store, we'll talk for a few minutes. See, that's a deeper level of friendship. There's those people at the grocery store you see from church and you're just like, Probably not. It's probably not best. Like, that's a deeper level of friendship when you walk towards them to say, how are you doing? Sure is nice outside. But there's an even deeper level of friendship. These are people that you might visit with in the grocery store for half an hour. You get lost in your conversations with them. You talk about your kids and your grandkids or what's going on at school and you visit with them and you lose track because you love visiting with them. But the thought of having them in your home? That's never happened before. Peter says in verse 9, Show hospitality to one another without grumbling, without complaint. And I wondered why. Why in the middle of this beautiful sermon about praying, loving one another, and using your spiritual gifts, why right in the middle of that would Peter say, also invite people into your house? That would be key. Why? 
because there's a different level of friendship when that person comes into your home and you share your life with them. That's different than the person you shake hands with in the church foyer. That's different than bump into them at the grocery store. That's different than take them out for coffee and visit for an hour. When you bring them into your own home, hospitality, bring them into your life, that's messy. They're going to see the things that you hide from everybody else. That's honest conversation. You can't just, oh, look at the time. I'll see you next time. You can't just do that when you're in your living room. You're committed. Unless you have some sort of a a sneaky way of pushing them out of your house, you can't just do that. Loving people to the point of hospitality. Welcoming people into your life. You know as well as I do that the families and friends that you have that you welcome into your home, that's a different level of friendship. That's a different level of love. Peter is writing to people that are experiencing the loneliness of losing their gang. And he says to them, pray, love, invite them in. And finally, spiritual gifts. Verse 10, as each has received a gift, use it to serve one another. Oh, that's so key. And as we read through 1 Corinthians, sorry to take you away from the Bible again, just as I start to read. Like, uh, Matthew and Olivia were sharing that even in their prayer time, 1 Corinthians. Like you could have the spiritual gift to move mountains. And Paul writes, but if you don't love other people in your church, your gift is useless. What's the point? I'm telling you, if I had the gift to move mountains, that would be a very big deal. I would move mountains if I had that gift. You would watch and I would do it and it would be amazing and people would talk about it everywhere. But if I didn't love you, What's the point? If you could speak an angelic language, if you had the gift to know prophecy and reveal it to other people, but you don't love the people around you, what's the point? So as each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Does a steward own it or just take care of it? What does the steward do? That's an interesting way of Peter putting it. God's grace to us is varied, and we are simply stewards of it. It made me think of two different things. One is this. When you borrow someone's vehicle, how do you treat it? You borrowed people's vehicles before. How do you treat their vehicle when you borrow it? And for people who are too young, see, I'm a youth group leader too. When you borrow someone's cell phone for something, how do you treat that phone? See, when you hold someone else's phone, you hold it with two hands. When you hold your own phone, you hold it with a finger and a thumb. But not a friend's phone, you hold it with both hands, right? When you drive someone else's truck, you drive the speed limit. When you drive your own, we're not going to say anything. There's a difference when you're borrowing it because it doesn't belong to you. Be careful. But also use it for its intended purpose. If you borrowed someone's truck to haul some trees to the dump and they find you going on a road trip to Regina to take your family out for supper, people might be like, what are you doing with my truck? If you borrow someone's cell phone to make a phone call and they look over and you're scrolling through their photos, give me back my phone. Like, what are you doing? You asked to make a phone call. Why are you going through last year's photos? Oh, not a big deal. You have my banking app open? Give me back my phone. No, it's not a big deal. It's not a big deal. Use it for its intended purpose. Because it hurts our feelings when people borrow something and then don't use it for its intended purpose. 
How would you feel if you lent out your vehicle and it was abused? How would you feel if you lent out your phone and it was abused? And Peter says that we're stewards of God's grace. God gives that grace to us, those spiritual gifts to us, and says, use them for their intended purpose. And we treat them with, without care, without respect. And we treat them for purposes that he didn't intend. How would that make God feel? Peter says, whoever has a gift of speaking... This could be words of knowledge and wisdom. This could be prophetic gifts. This could be encouragement. This could be even the gift of prayer to intercede. Whoever has speaking gifts, this is verse 11, then they're speaking as one who speaks the words of God. The words aren't yours. They're his. And to counter that, whoever serves, you have a serving gift. Right? Go through the gifts of the Spirit. Look at the people who have mercy and healing. Look at the people. That it's, a, it's a gift that you do with an action. It's not something you say. It's tangible with your hands. If you have one of those gifts, then you're serving only by the strength that God supplies to you. It's not yours. So if you have gifts of the words, they're his words. If you have gifts with your hands, then that energy is God's. None of it's yours. Why? In order that in everything, God gets the glory. Because it's all supposed to point at him. People are supposed to see the spiritual gifts that you have and go, wow, God's amazing. Look at his spiritual gift. Isn't God amazing? Not look at his spiritual gift. Isn't he amazing? They're supposed to hear you use your words and go, those words are amazing from God. Or see the way that, that Bob loves people through action. And they're supposed to look at that and go, wow, God is amazing. Look what he's done in his life. Not look and say, what a great human. I wish I could be a human like him. What a great human. It doesn't belong to us. The church doesn't belong to us. It's his. Like that's a humbling statement to make. That's why when he calls us to pray for one another, to love one another, and to use our gifts to serve one another, we abuse the privilege of church when we use it for anything else. When we take away from loving one another. Because this belongs to him. He's allowing us to have it for a time until we're taken back to heaven with him. God is supposed to get the glory, and he will if we love one another earnestly. God's supposed to get the glory, and he will when you start to show hospitality to one another without grumbling and complaint. God will get the glory when his people choose to humble themselves and pray. Second Chronicles 7.14, If my people will humble themselves and seek my face and pray, I'll heal their land, heal their sin. And if we use our spiritual gifts to love one another and serve one another. Let's not simply go to gang. Let's not simply go to church. Let's be that family. Let's do that. Let's start it right now. Someone uh, called me just a couple weeks ago and said to me, Darren, I love our church, and our church is so loving. They're a loving church. And I said, amen. They're a loving church. This person said, you got to tell them. you got to tell them. They're a loving church. These words are from God. So hear this church. You are a loving church. 
You are a loving group. Continue in that love. Bob, would you come and close our service in a word of prayer?